0: people sometimes use commentaries as crutches in the sense of they go too quick to the commentaries. They basically say, I want to preach a Scott McKnight sermon or I want to preach a Gordon Fee sermon. And so they go right to those commentaries. My opinion is the preacher has a responsibility to be to spend a lot of time, as much as time as possible, in an active mode of listening to God about what word God wants to give to his people. And that requires freedom from distraction, which could even be distraction from commentaries.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. This is episode 170, and I'm your host, Mike Neglia. Uh, this week's conversation is with Professor Nije Gupta. Uh, Nije is the professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He is uh, the author of an important book that came out recently called Paul and the Language of Faith. He is a co-host of the In Faith and Doubt podcast with A.J. Swoboda. And in this conversation, we speak about uh, primarily the right and the wrong ways to use commentaries. Um, If you're listening to this podcast, uh, you likely are a regular or an occasional uh, preacher and teacher of God's Word, uh, which means that you probably are familiar with commentaries. Maybe you have a small or a large library um, of commentaries that you consult. Uh, This conversation speaks about the best ways to consult with the authors, both living and dead, to help us understand and even triangulate to understand what the scriptures say to us today. Uh, The conversation is very compelling and interesting, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. Just want to quickly invite you to uh, check us out on our website, expositorscollective.com or on various social media, uh, you can find out information about our upcoming in-person training event that's taking place uh, September 17th and 18th in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, We're certainly more than just a podcast. We really believe in training and equipping young and new Bible teachers. So connect with us online so that you might be able to connect with us in person in September. Okay, I'm going to get out of your way and let you listen in on this conversation with Professor Gupta. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Nijay Gupta. Uh, good morning, and thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks. So uh, glad to be here with you.
1: Uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, I know that like a lot of the interviews that that you've done or at least the stuff that I've been able to listen to in preparation for this like you, you speak about like faith um, a lot or the, the language of faith or different ways to to understand um, faith and and faithfulness um, I hope you're ready to just talk about preaching is that
0: okay <laughs> yeah I think preaching is a form of faithfulness
1: so let's absolutely talk about it Ah well I, I knew you'd find a way to to, to combine them <laughs> together. Um, so dr. Gupta, what what was the first time? like what was your first first sermon? so you're 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 known as as like an academic or as a teacher, but I know you you're a, a preacher as well. When's the first time that you ever preached a sermon?
0: Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. So I would say kind of a technical sermon, you know, what would what would be officially considered a sermon versus kind of a testimonial or devotional would be in seminary. I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and, um, you know, we had an assignment where we had to preach uh, a sermon that we prepared to our peers. Uh, I remember that it was uh, my favorite text uh, in the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer, and um, I I will say it was a very, it was a very amateur (laughs) uh, product. Um, I was very nervous to be amongst seminary students and professors. Um, I, I you know, when you start preaching, it feels very clunky. It feels very, um, in some way artificial because you're kind of learning the, how it, how it works. You're learning about yourself. Um, you know, I got good feedback from my peers. I'm a pretty animated person. Um, but I, it was really uncomfortable, really, really, really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, my wife is, is, uh, in ministry and, and, Uh, She does a lot of speaking and and preaching and, um, you know, we've talked about it over the years. It's something that, you know, my friend Gerald Alcantara says this too, it requires a lot of practice to be good at. You just think if you're spiritual and you're holy, Jesus will just zap you with the preaching juice and all of a sudden you're a dynamite preacher. There may be one or two people out there like that. For the rest of us, practice makes perfect.
1: Yeah. So did you like were you torn to shreds? Did the prof just like criticize you and, and did the students just like mock you for such a poor sermon? Um,
0: no, the students were all in the same boat. So
1: yeah, that never happens. One or two students.
0: <laughs> yeah. One or two students did, you know, so oh, I disagree with this. I disagree with that. Oh really? Um, oh. but I think everybody was trying to be supportive cause we're all doing the same project Uh, the professor, I mean, they listen to thousands of Mm -hmm. sermons from students, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so they're almost never impressed. (laughs) So they just give you the feedback, like do your gestures this way or, you know, that kind of thing. It's really nerve wracking for us, but the professors, they, 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 you know, they have to listen to many, many hundreds of these. And so we're just another, another part of the, you know, of the project.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just to, to realize too, that like everyone in that room, like is rooting for you. Everyone wants you to, to succeed. And so we, we, yeah, oftentimes in those circumstances, could you jump from there to maybe your first time, like, you know, leaving the nest, uh, first time preaching in a maybe non-classroom setting? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, when
0: I was in seminary, I was really uncertain about my, um, vocational future. Uh, on the one hand, I'm a you know official nerd, and I love studying the Greek New Testament and uh, talking about all the historical background questions and all of that word studies. But I also love the church, and in many ways, I don't feel completely at home in either world church or academy. I really, really try to live in both worlds. I'm very active in ministry, and so, yeah, my first time probably out. You know, I think our biggest fear is um, people are going to walk out. People are going to come up to us and say that was wrong for such and such reason. That's never happened. I don't remember exactly the first time, but I do remember that um, people obviously they care about what you say, mm-hmm. but they also are um, we're emotional beings and they're also connecting with you on another level. No one really taught me um you know, they teach you how to, how to be, you know, uh, uh, doctrinally correct. They teach you how to inspire and influence. Um, but you don't really realize how emotional of experience it is until you do it. And there's so much about how we engage with the audience emotionally and how much warmth or sometimes, um, uh, you know, get the right responses in terms of what you want to invoke or provoke in the person. Um, I, I don't think I was in tune to any of that when I was in my Hmm. early sermons because I was just trying to get all the facts, right?
1: Yeah. Right. So people might fall into two, two, two sides of the coin with the, the emotional piece. Um, Emotionally, like over expressive, uh, to the point of kind of right. being fake, or or manipulative, or then just being kind of a cold, calculating kind of Doctor Spock uh, type person. Yes, yeah, stoic. That's that's a more <laughs> classical reference yeah. than Doctor Sp- or Mister Spock. But so, which where did you where did you start? Where did you? What's your pro, you know proclivity?
0: I definitely started on the more stoic end, just okay. because. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. I grew mm. up uh, in a Hindu uh, context. And so I didn't grow up hearing sermons. Um, so my formative experiences in Christianity a lot were in seminary. And so mm. I saw sermons as like little lectures, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> little lectures to the congregation. Yeah. And um, and as I've studied preachers and as I've studied um, just, you know, I live in Oregon, just the, the great preachers in my area. Um, the importance of being yourself uh and and not trying to emulate a superstar like Tim Keller or someone um is, is really crucial. So I would say I started out in the stoic.
1: Um mm-hmm.
0: I definitely don't want to be, you know, kind of driven only by emotions, but uh I'm a pretty authentic person, so you know, I I do realize a lot of the things that God wants to say to God's people um, are holistic things. And so I try to bring that into my sermons.
1: Okay. Uh, so you've, you've, you've grown more. It seems like your understanding of, a, of, a, of the sermon has, has changed from a, a short, yes. didactic, communicative piece to, uh, and I've, I've found this in some of your writings, uh, you, you speak about like preaching is inviting Christ um, to dwell in the people of God and to do his ministry yeah. there more so than just for you to, to get some truth off your chest, but it's inviting Christ. Could, Could you maybe speak about the, that progress and that change and how you've landed on this newer understanding of preaching?
0: Yeah. So, you know, in, in my early years of faith, um, my understanding was a church service climaxes with a sermon. Like the sermon is the main reason you're at church. The sermon is about learning. The sermon is about teaching and that's the focus. Um, a couple of things helped shift some of that. I still believe in the power of preaching. I still believe mm-hmm. in the power of teaching the teaching ministry of the church. I actually teach courses called the teaching ministry of the church, so I believe in it. But um, two voices have been really uh, influential to me. One is Eugene Peterson, and the other is um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So uh, start with a simple insight from Peterson Uh, His book, Eat This Book, which is a really fantastic book, but he basically says, what is scripture for? Uh, It is for information, but more importantly, it is for formation. And um, that has had a big impact on me because it's so easy just to say, okay, went to church, heard a sermon. Great. That's it. I got my Hmm. information. I've I've added to my list of correct doctrines. Move on. And, yeah. and Peterson says, no, it's about being shaped. Uh, and being shaped by God um, into the person of, more unlike the person of Jesus. The second one is Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer has probably shaped my understanding of preaching more than anyone else. He kind of takes inspiration from Colossians 3, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And um, he takes that literally in the sense of, Um, Our goal as ministers is to invite and uh, welcome the living presence of Jesus into our midst. And that presence will have an effect on us because of how powerful Jesus is. And so I almost imagine it that when you're speaking, when you're preaching, it's almost like it, it is this channel for Jesus to show up. And he's kind of walking amongst the people and for some people, he's touching their heart in a way it's going to comfort them. And other people, he's touching their heart in a way it's going to challenge them. And for some people, it's both. And so uh, that that's really changed how I look at preaching. Uh, makes it more about putting the spotlight on Jesus and taking it off of kind of making it into a little bit a little bit of a, a lecture or a lesson.
1: Yeah. Well, I I certainly love that that imagery or to to imagine the 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 Lord walking amongst the congregation, similar to the, the candlesticks in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, but but um, where where does Bonhoeffer get that? Is that just a a pleasant, comforting notion? Or like does uh, yeah where does that come from?
0: That's a good question. I'm not a Bonhoeffer expert but I would say it's his Christology it's his Christology and it's his ecclesiology as as in mutually interactive, this idea that Christ is a living presence and, um, he is the center of the church, uh, and the church exists to be, uh, led and affected by Christ. And then when it comes to preaching, um, I think it's really the power, the power of the word, the word that we speak, but also Christ as the word. Um, yeah. That would be my guess, but that I don't know the technical answer to that question.
1: I man, I'd love to get him on the show one day. But uh, do you think theologically, do you think there'll be podcasts in heaven? I I hope so. <laughs> or
0: <laughs>
1: I, I, I definitely think there'll be
0: conversations.
1: There'll be conversations. Yes, yes. Um, okay, and so so that's the the, the Bonhoeffer Christ dwelling richly, and then Peterson's idea of like being shaped. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if we do like. I'm a dad, I know that you're a dad. I wonder if we maybe do a disservice when you know Sunday afternoon uh let's say back in two thousand and nineteen back before everything changed you know you're 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 walking away from church service or you're driving away or you're cycling away, and you, you turn to your kids and you say, "Well, kids, what did you learn today and i've I've asked that dozens of times or hundreds of times, and sometimes I think well but is it? It's it's more than just learning something, and and we we go to church not to not to learn. And I've, I've had you know sometimes my kids would pray before before church or in over breakfast on Sunday morning, and that God, we pray that we'd learn something about you today. And I think that's beautiful. I, I don't want to lean over and correct my child's prayers, um, but they, they learn it from me. And if I'm communicating, well, you know, the reason why we go to church, Rosie, Owen, and Finn, is so that you can learn more about God. But do you think that it also be this, this this experiencing of God? We're, we're going to go there to experience God together?
0: Yeah. Uh, in, in spirit, I, I understand what you're saying and agree the word experience can lead people into the direction of kind of emotionalism or, you know, one person told me uh, once um, they shouldn't call it a worship service. They should call it a worship experience. But it's still service because we're serving God. And, you know, so um, experience is a tricky word. I, hmm. I, I don't hmm. mind using it and I like it. Um, I think we need to, with our children, with our, with our congregation, we need to define worship because even, even preaching is a form of worship. Even listening to preaching is a form of worship. Um, I, what would I say to my kids? I would say, um, maybe, I'd probably I'd take an hour to do this, but how did you come <laughs> to know God better if we understand knowing as a holistic concept? Um, because we can know somebody just by sitting with them. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about my background. So um, I teach now at Northern Seminary, which is in uh, Chicago Land. But for several years, I taught at George Fox University Portland Seminary, which is a Quaker heritage school. And I'm not Quaker, um, and I don't go to a Quaker uh, meeting. But I've learned a lot from the Quakers about the power of listening, the power of silence, the power of solitude. And so I used to teach undergraduates as well. And I would, you know, for some assignment, I would have them uh, go to a church that's unlike their own heritage. And so, for example, they could go to a Quaker service uh, meeting and a student member came back and did a report on it. And she said, "Uh, I used to think the reason you go to church is to hear a sermon. And then you go to one of these Quaker meetings, especially one of the more uh, old school ones. And they, they just sit in silence. And um I think it's important for people to have these kinds of experiences. So it kind of helps them better understand. I don't think a church service should just be silenced, but not all the time. Um, but moments like that really shake us out of thinking that the way my church does is, is the way that everybody does it. And um so so knowing God, we can know him in many different ways in many different ways of our being preaching uh verbally is one of them uh but but yeah i would probably try to express it a little differently
1: yeah okay so yeah there, there's information that's coming through and it's to mediate and i, I won't use the word yeah inca- experience but perhaps an, an encounter well that's what you said it's inviting christ to dwell within the people of god and do his ministry there
0: yeah, yeah. okay
1: well that's 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 a wonderful. That's a that's a broadening um, uh, definition of it. That's that's valuable, and you know the the point of this this podcast. We're kind of a, a wing of a broader ministry, which is all about you know teaching uh, new and young Bible teachers to you know exegetically, Christocentric, uh, Christocentrically. Christ. I've been doing interviews all day, so I'm all Christocentric communicate the, the scriptures. And so, yes, we do know that there is a, a teaching aspect to it. And there also is like proclaiming Christ, but maybe in addition to that, also welcoming Christ among us. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that's this is a, a wonderful diversion. Totally not on my on my notes, but I, I really enjoyed I enjoyed that piece. Um, I'm I'm holding uh, with me right now one of your you know this is a, one of your your books. Um, this is the New Testament Commentary Guide. Uh, this is a like essentially a commentary on commentaries. Uh, that's right. Wow. Um, I guess I I'd like to ask in a minute like how do you think that that preacher should be using commentaries but first could you tell us like what's the the origin story of of this what what prompted a commentary on commentaries Yeah so um
0: you know I've taught at the seminary level for about 12 years and so I've taught hundreds of students and um, if a, if an alumnus is going to contact me later on and send a m- message to me over Facebook or Twitter or email, prob- it probably goes something like this. Hi, Nij, How's it going? Hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing a sermon series on Colossians. What commentary should I be reading? Mm. Or I'm doing mm. a sermon series on Matthew, or I'm doing a sermon series on Acts. Yeah. Uh, I might get one of these messages every week or twice a week. Um, And I love it. And I love it because pastors want to learn. They want to grow. And there's so many commentaries. If you walk into a a major theological library at a seminary like uh, Trinity or Southern or Fuller or wherever, Asbury, um, you're going to see 200 commentaries on Romans. Um, and, and you just walk in the library and you're just overwhelmed. What do I choose? You might choose the newest one. You might choose one by someone you've heard their name of, but you know, there's good stuff out there. You don't know what's good and what Mm -hmm. may not be as good. And so a lot of this is really kind of, um, me offering kind of my greatest hits and it's very opinion based, um, because there's so many out there and people have different takes on them, but it's really just kind of the, you know, the, the kind of. Quick guide to okay. Give me five. Give me five commentaries on this because I'm doing a sermon series. Yeah. Um. And that's that's basically what it is. It comes out of my experience with students really wanting help sifting through the many uh, that are out there. But another thing is, people are often looking for perspectives outside of their own tradition. Okay. Because they want fresh perspectives. They want to know what they don't know. And a lot of times, our own tradition can get very narrow. And yeah. I, you know, we all have our own traditions. There's no problem with that. But they want to say, you know, is there another perspective on this that might illuminate things for me and open things up? And I try to do that as well.
1: Wow. Well, yeah, I, I've I've enjoyed yeah flipping through it. I'm looking at some series that I've that I've taught. Dismayed to see that I didn't read a single one of the recommended <laughs> <laughs> commentaries on on this book or or that book. But I, I do know I'm I'm part of a few different kind of you know group chats or whatever, and um, it'd be a lot of like uh, pastor buddies. And it kind of is silent for a lot of the times until someone's getting ready to start a new series, and then yeah, he's asking all of us what's what's the best thing on Philippians or what's the best commentary you've read on that. So um, that's 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 brilliant. And so I'd like to ask you like how should a pastor use a commentary then? So it's not just to, to buy the right ones, but after you buy them, how should they be used? I have a feeling you have some thoughts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for asking, because I feel like um, people sometimes use commentaries as crutches in the sense of um, they go too quick to the commentaries. And they basically say, I want to preach a Scott McKnight sermon, or I want to preach a Gordon Fee sermon. And so they go right to those commentaries and and they, you know, I love, I love those commentaries, but, um, I feel this is, I'm going to give you my opinion here. I think it's obvious, but I want to make it clear. Yeah. Um, my opinion is the preacher has a responsibility to, be, to spend a lot of time, as much as time as possible, in an active mode of listening to God about what word God wants to give to his people. And that requires freedom from distraction, which could even be distraction from commentaries. Mm. So my encouragement is for a pastor to begin with um, maybe using like a textbook or something if they want like a New Testament introduction or or a real basic commentary just to get a basic lay of the land. I want to know like let's say you're preaching on 2nd Peter. I don't do a lot with 2nd Peter. So I don't really know what 2nd Peter is about if you ask me how if I could sum up, I couldn't sum up that for you. So I would need a textbook or a commentary to give me basic lay of the land basic outline. Um but then I think a, a preacher's responsibility is to spend a lot as much time as possible Meditating on the text, and and interacting with the text inductively. Inductively meaning you're not bringing all these outside things as tools, but you're really trying to just live in that text, to to sit in that text, soak it in for as much time as possible. So I'll tell you my my uh, approach to this. Uh, you know, I I teach Greek. I use Greek. So, if you don't use Greek, then you'll have to do this in English. But I'll take the, the Greek text and I will um, print it out in like 30, 50 point font, double, triple spaced, and I'll actually tape it to the window. Oh, yeah. Uh, in my office. Um, it might take up a whole wall, depending on how big it is, how big yeah. the passage is, the wider passage. Um, and then every day for, for a week, if I can do it, or longer if, would be better, I'll use colored pencils. And each day I'll use a different colored pencil and I will just mark it up. I'll ask questions. I'll make connections. I'll draw things. I'll, you know, as much as I can to get tactilely, kinetically involved with the text. Um, And every day I'll use a different color. I'll go back to it and I'll just keep going and going and going until I'm kind of sick of the text in the sense (laughs) that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just stuffing myself with this text. So where do commentaries come in commentaries? I feel like come in, uh, in a later process for number one, um, clarity, you know, if, if, if a comment, if the commentaries say I'm way off on what I feel like the big idea is, yeah, that's, that's helpful. Um, but also for, um, maybe for, for some historical grounding, you know, some historical sure. bits, Yeah, Uh, of okay, Josephus or this and that. You know that helps me with confidence in that.
1: Because no matter how much you stare at it, it's not going to tell you about the Ephesian history. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. There are things you don't know, and you might have to look up those things. But I think um, you know half or a good portion of the time that you spend in sermon prep should be just living in that text. It's just going to like, it's just going to walk around with you all day. Um, and i and I feel like sometimes preachers feel apprehensive to do that because they feel this i don 't know enough, I need the commentaries and i I want especially a well trained pastor should should feel confident in being able to um, being able to just spend that time inductively in the text,
1: yeah, yeah. OK, um, that's I've I've interviewed a lot of people about their sermon prep routine. Uh, no one has done what you just talking about, or especially just imagining just the, you know, the 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 letters pasted all over the room and kind of imagine one of those like conspiracy theory persons like, you know, like. Yes, dots yes, and lines. exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, you got it. You got my technique. <laughs> um, that's that's. That, and, so, and so commentaries come after, you are ex, after you've exhausted the Greek text or ex, you've exhausted that. And then you think, I wonder what Scott McKnight has to say on this passage.
0: Yeah, well, I, I could see some before and after. If I'm doing something in the Old Testament, I don't preach on the Old Testament very much, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, because a lot of times the sermon series, I'm being invited to preach into our New Testament sermon series. But uh-huh. let's say I'm preaching on you know, Second Chronicles you know, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to need to go to a a commentary, a basic commentary to get a lay of the land, really to really understand some of the basic things. Yeah. Um, I'm going to use certain tools while I'm doing inductive Bible study, like word study tools, maybe some dictionaries. The problem with commentaries and things like study Bibles is they give you the answer. Mm. And, um, and, and I want to, wrestle with the text enough that I'm discovering. So let me put it this way. I don't want a commentary to ever short circuit my own process of discovery. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I've 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 read something else that you've written on like um meditation and saying that like meditation, you want to, you want to have like a, like a staring contest with the text and you called it like a distraction free zone, a work free zone. And you you called it a sermon free zone that it's, it's not that you're, you're wrestling with it because Sunday is coming, but you're just meditating upon, upon the the passage itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because, um, I read the statistic once, maybe you've heard this before, I think it was like 85% of pastors only read the Bible for sermon prep. And that puts you in a certain mode when you're doing wait, sermon are you, prep. Wait,
1: can that, is that true? <laughs> or where, I, I said, I said, I mean, I really, I, I said, hmm, but then I thought, wait, 85% is a lot. That's a lot. I will say,
0: um, given the, the time demands that pastors are under, the productivity demands, um, the many hats they wear, the time you have for quote, unquote, leisure reading mm-hmm. um, feels compressed. And so I could see that being a challenge. I, I don't okay. know, but I could see it being a challenge.
1: Okay. Um, okay.
0: And so in that, so then when we're in sermon prep mode, and I've I preach about once every month or two, um, at different churches in the Portland metro area. Um, when I'm in sermon prep mode, I'm in, um, I'm focused on work, right? That's a different mode than, um, just kind of opening up my radio signal to hear from God. Um, that's a different mode. And I think the first mode of our sermon prep should be, should be studying and listening.
1: Okay. Okay. Okay, so yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'd, I'd love to like I have maybe another question to to come back to, to commentaries themselves, and then I'd love to speak to you about um, like the inductive Bible study um, method that you you have used. Uh, so in in uh, in this New Testament commentary guide, and then and elsewhere, you've spoken about the importance of like intentionally reading broadly, um, and maybe my question is like, well, well, why why should we? Um, if I've already heard, if I already know, you know, that J.C. Ryle exists, well, then what's, what do I need to read? Others haven't kind of the best commentary has already risen to the top at this point, And so I can just skim off the top rather than reading broadly. Uh, talk me yeah. out of that old fashioned way of thinking, <laughs> please. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. Good question. So, um, well, it's a bad question, so, really, but <laughs> intentionally this ra- so. This raises
0: Well, this, ra- this raises a good question about what we call hermeneutics, I know you know what this word means, but maybe some people listening don't. So hermeneutics is a philosophy, is the philosophy of interpretation. And hermeneutics doesn't just exist in the Bible, it exists in conversations about knowledge in general, and how we learn things. And so some, some scholars have said, um, meaning, meaning when it comes to biblical text is fixed. And so there is one meaning, and we all are kind of in a race to figure out what that is. And and if we're all doing it right, we're all coming to the same meaning. Other people say um, biblical meaning is not fixed, and therefore you might preach a different sermon on John 3.16 than I would versus someone else versus someone else. Um, I think it is actually more complicated than both of those answers. Um, There's a theory that I've used, which uh, is not widely known, but I've appreciated it. Uh, called triangulation. Hmm. So triangulation is this idea that if you're trying to um, uh, see something or understand, let's say a mountain, um, I'm only seeing the mountain from one position, right? And no matter where I am, I'm only seeing the mountain from one position. And so if I'm able to triangulate with you and you're on the other side of the mountain, and I'm able to triangulate with someone else and they're on Mm -hmm. another part and another part, then between the 10 of us or 20 of us or a thousand of us, um, together we have a more, a more complete understanding of that mountain. So I don't know, you know, with my phone, my phone gets confused and doesn't know the compass. It'll do the circle thing. And I have to go around in a circle. Have you ever done this before where you have to like turn your phone in a circle to get the gyroscope
1: to reset? No, but I can imagine.
0: Uh, <laughs> I don't use, I don't so use so the gyroscope compass very much. <laughs> yeah. So your gyroscope gets confused. And so you okay. have to do this thing to reorient it, to turn in a circle. And it's kind of like that with interpretation. So let me give you an example. Um, I'm, I grew up in America. I was born and raised in America, but my parents are immigrants from India. And I grew up in a very honor-shame-oriented uh, household context. Mm-hmm. Um, so those aspects of Scripture, the honor-shame aspects, really stand out to me. And I understand them much better than someone that doesn't come from that context. And so if you have a biblical commentary written by uh, me or someone like David De Silva who has an Asian background, um, it's, we're going to end up talking about those things mm-hmm. uh, more, and we're going to end up talking about those things, I feel like, probably more accurately uh, than people that don't have that experience. Let's say you have someone, you know, I have some chronic medical issues, uh, physical ailment I- I- issues in scripture, they're going to stand out to me, mm-hmm. and I, I'm going to end up talking about them in ways that uh, J.C. Rowell may not. I don't know J.C. Rowell, but maybe J.C. Rowell doesn't talk about them. And um, so this isn't about who's right and who's wrong, even though I am very concerned with who's right and who's wrong uh, when it comes to biblical truth. This is more about you don't know what you don't know. And you can't see beyond your own personal perspective. And our own experiences and perspectives shape how we interpret Scripture so it's not to say that I'm concerned about someone specifically being wrong, but just that yeah. more perspectives gives us, gives us more perspective.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, the fact that you don't know about J.C. Ryle is like perfectly illustrates that because... In, in my circles, he, he actually is like a standard go-to uh, commentator. He was a, an Anglican uh, bishop, I think from Liverpool from the, the 1800s. And he's just like, well, you know, that's good old standard uh, J.C. Ryle, but it's good old standard J.C. Ryle in certain contexts. And kind of it works. And he's got great devotional thoughts and kind of got a get up and go uh, type type thing. But that's, that's one part of the body of Christ. That's one human lived experience and not the only one at all. And I, I love that you didn't know it. That's, that's, that's awesome.
0: I, I will say we did read J.C. Rowell in seminary. We didn't read any commentaries, but we read pamphlets. I don't know. He had little things that he wrote. But um, my version of that would be F.F. Bruce, who is a very well-known commentary writer in the like 1960s, 70s, 80s. I'm not saying older commentaries aren't good. I, I actually FF Bruce is one of my favorite commentary writers. I still go back to his 1980s commentaries and I find huge amounts of value. But um, for example, Bruce isn't going to talk about um, racism uh, in the church in the same way. We're going to talk about it today because Mm. he, you know, he had a different experience back then. He's not going to talk about uh, some of the questions we have about technology and bioterrorism and things like that. So there's all kinds of modern issues that commentaries will engage with, depending on the type of commentary.
1: Yeah. And a final thing on commentaries before we talk about inductive Bible study, but um, you you say in here that like, we probably shouldn't use free online commentaries. Now explain yes. that to my budget. <laughs> why Why shouldn't yeah. I use uh, free online commentaries?
0: The, there are a couple, couple challenges there. I mean, you should always use whatever you find helpful, but um, a lot of the stuff that's in the public domain is really, really old. There's nothing wrong with things that are really old. In fact, I encourage my students to read The Church Fathers, to read The Reformers. Um Chrysostom Calvin is a fantastic commentary writer. Yeah.
1: So you're um, saying if you're gonna go old, go real old.
0: Go really old. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. pre-modern commentaries. I use them constantly. Ambrosiaster and Theodore and Theodore and all that. But Um, Matthew Henry, for example, Um, there are all kinds of things that we have learned as scholars over the years that should give us pause about using some commentaries from the 1800s, early 1900s. It's not that you shouldn't use them, but I don't feel like a lot of pastors are trained to know um, some of those things that those older scholars don't know. For example, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we learned a lot About early Judaism, and it's taught us a lot about what's true and not true about early Judaism. And those older works don't take that into consideration, and it can be really challenging. Um, We've just discovered a lot of material, a lot of things about the world of Jesus and Paul and the Old Testament as well. Um, The other problem is people can put stuff online, and there's no editing, and there's no, so if someone, you know, let's say you, decide I'm going to write a commentary in the gospel of John. I'm going to put it on my blog for free. That's great. People might use it, but academics uh, commentaries go through a rigorous editing process yeah. with a committee. And the, the back end of that is you pay money for it. You're paying for us to go through a process as, as a purchaser for stuff. That's just free online. I'll tell you a funny story. My wife and I will sit in church, listening to a pastor preach and they'll say something sensational about the biblical text. And my wife will look at me as if to say, is that true? And I'd say about 80% of the time, the answer is no. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then, you know, we always say this in seminary, we always said this, right doctrine, wrong text. They're not preaching heresy, but what they're saying is a catchy idea without evidence. This happens all the time. So you really have to be careful not to do that. Um, just because uh, it's so easy to take one kind of just idea that's out there and say, okay, I'm just gonna preach on this as if this true this is true. Um, I could give you so many examples of that and 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 it's it's you know it's about finding resources that you can really trust to, to give you good information.
1: Okay. Oh man, I imagine preaching my guts out, preaching my heart out, and I look down in the second row and I see you look at your wife and just shake your head. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, I would probably whisper to her he's a good guy. Yeah. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Yes. <laughs> he, happens he Googled, all the time. He Googled that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. All right. Well, so, so now the, the long awaited, so like, like talk us into like, what is, what is inductive Bible study? I, I assume there's a vague familiarity amongst the hearers of this podcast, but, but, uh, but why should it be part of our process and, and what is it and how do you use it?
0: Yeah, so inductive Bible study, you know, my 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 take on this. There's a scholar named Robert Traina who has done a lot of work on inductive Bible study, and he's kind of the guru. He's seen as kind of the guru of inductive Bible study. So, inductive Bible study is this idea that um, we're going to learn the most, or we're going to learn the most effectively, uh, when we really study the text for itself. And not try to import all these other things to kind of, you know, the the, the best and clearest and, and most effective way to study scripture is to um, is to examine the text carefully. Yeah. Uh, and not say, okay, you now I'm going to use all these other resources. Now, using other resources is good, but inductive Bible study is about looking at the flow of the text. It's about looking at the wording of the text. Uh, It's about uh, trying to understand kind of the, uh, what was the author trying to say in the context, the literary context of the text, uh, things like that. So that you're, uh, so what would, what would not be inductive Bible study? I would say if you're just trying to like pull verses out of different parts of scripture to create kind of this pastiche sermon on a topic, that's not really inductive preaching. It's not really inductive Bible study. Uh, It's not if you just say, okay, here's Josephus. Josephus talks about Pharisees, you know, and you know, you bring all this other stuff. Uh, Historical background is important, but inductive Bible study is saying uh, the word of God is, are these words and really um, studying carefully those words uh, in, in their, in their document, they're part of like James or Hebrews is crucial.
1: And why do you, this is a, 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 maybe a judgment or maybe goes beyond your ability to comment, but why do you think that this is a rare topic or why is this more rare amongst uh, Bible teachers and preachers these days?
0: I don't think it's rare. I think people do it, somewhat do it naturally. Um, I think partly the problem in the modern world versus the ancient world is we have so many resources. I mean, I have Logos Bible Software. I open it up, and I have like seventy thousand resources. Yeah. So with literally a click of the button, uh, I can pull up thousands of resources, and um, and it gives me information on who is this person and what is this place. All of that's good. Yeah. And all of that plays a part in Bible study preparation, preaching preparation, but it can become a distraction. From just living in that text.
1: Hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think you've 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 modeled, and at least the way you've explained this, you've brought us into that process of of your own living in the text. And uh, even where the, the walls of your home are covered uh, with it, or to some degree, or your office anyway. But yeah, yeah, yeah. may we may we maybe live with it more. Um, okay, here's a here's a final question. And there might be a one quick bonus one afterwards, but here's the final main question. Um, so Uh, Dr. Gupta, how are you trying to improve when you, when you preach, what's something that you'd like to get better on in 2021?
0: what? Okay. How would I improve, um, my preaching? It is by no means perfect. So absolutely open to this. Um, okay. This is something I've been thinking a lot about. I think it's almost never done. Okay. Um, any anything we want to get better at needs to be assessed. In the academic world, we assess things constantly.
1: Hmm. Yes.
0: So if I were if I were a weekly preacher, right? Um, this is hard, and I, it's not practical, and it's probably really difficult to, to pull off. But I would want to make sure I get feedback on my preaching from the church on a regular basis. Now. I'm not saying I want everybody to always email me all their thoughts. That's overwhelming and probably not wise. But I might say, um, I might have a rotation, uh, you know, almost a random rotation, like focus groups. And it would randomly go out every week to five different people in the church hmm. and say, you know, I'd have some diagnostics. You know, um, I'd tell them what I think preaching is, the biblical definition of preaching. I'd say what I'm going after, what I care about, what the church needs. And then I'd invite welcome feedback. Uh what were things uh in a process and in the meeting this and that, and, the, and then in, what are some pushbacks and you know criticisms? How can I improve uh in this? How can I how can I serve you better? How can I serve the church better? How can I serve God better? Assessment's so hard. It's so hard. Uh but I don't know preachers that do this. Now they may not talk about it. Um, and maybe they do it yearly, but assessment is crucial. So if I were to regularly preach, uh, my wife tells me, <laughs> but if I were to regularly preach, uh, I would want, I would want constant feedback loop.
1: Uh, and what a difference in, in, in the academy or in, in every other part of education. And we've talked about how preaching is not only education, but, but in other aspects where someone stands up front and tells people what they should know and what they should believe, there is assessment. And then for preaching, which we could say is is quite important, you know, no offense, maybe more important. And if there's not assessment, that's an interesting thing. It's just really trusting that... Um, you know, just trusting everything's going great when maybe there is room for growth. There's a recent episode on this show with uh, uh, Greg Howe. He was part of a, a preaching team at New Life Church in um, in Queens, New York, and he talked about a little bit of their like assessment and collaboration process. That gave me some hope and some some enthusiasm. And it's great to hear even more. Uh, uh, well, at least this idealized <laughs> this dream of yours. That's well, a, let, a let me thing. ask
0: you because you, you you interview a lot of preachers. Do, do they, I do. Do you think that they? I'm actually curious. Do you think that they receive regular feedback on their sermons? Uh, maybe they do, and maybe I just don't know it.
1: Um. Well. Okay. So, Expositors Collective, as I mentioned earlier, like we're kind of like this like training initiative uh, within the Calvary Chapel movement, and like. One of our core values is like assessments and is um, receiving feedback and um, looking for like coaching and mentorship. So amongst amongst the people in our tribe that we're trying to influence. Like, yes, that is something that we're trying to say. This is something that's like valuable and important. And although you might occupy the pulpit alone, um, there needs to be or there should be um, people speaking to you even about your notes beforehand and then seeking some kind of feedback afterwards. Um, So it's something that we're working on. Um, And so the people that I speak to, that's something that they know that's important. Um, however, from even the feedback that I've gotten amongst people that have already started preaching, it's not something that they started with, and some people aren't really interested in adding it now. So, but yeah, I, I think it's there. I think that the future generations will value this more. I think that probably the, a generational thing as well. Uh, millennials or whatever might might value collaboration more than the previous generations and i hate to to stereotype or generalize but that looked to you know the the authority figure that speaks authoritatively whereas the wikipedia generation we just love gathering resources and and getting feedback so i'm optimistic about it i benefit from it personally and i encourage others to do the same okay we have four more minutes last question for you the bonus question what's the best coffee in portland
0: Oh gosh. Okay. We need more than four minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. So, um, <laughs> my wife and I, there's a coffee shop I really like called Cafe Umbria. It's Italian style coffee. Um, I, I would say that's a really good one. There's a, um, there's, I think a Central American, uh, uh, grown coffee, uh, shop here. That's, you know, a chain, a small chain, uh, called, uh, Nosa Familia coffee. Uh, I, I would say both of those, I, a visitor, I would def- definitely recommend they, they check those out. There's some snobbier ones, and there's some kind of more hipster ones. Um, but, but those are the two that, that we end up going to the most, I would say.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a, a student at Western, and so I've, I spent a week there. Oh, wonderful. I'm a you know, correspondent yeah. student. So I, so I spent a week there uh, last, last February? 2020 and it was almost overwhelming where it was like what what do i do? Yeah. I I don't want to go to the wrong one. Uh, I didn't totally. go I didn't make it to those. I, I ended up at Albina Press. Yeah, right down uh, the street. Which is like, yeah. you know, it's just yeah, it's it's the closest That's so a good one. ended up there. Uh, I I enjoyed that, but I I wanted to know cuz I'll, I'll probably be back there again at some point so. Great. I will I will replay this episode on my flight over and make sure that I end up at those. So Uh, Thank you for that. So you're you're quite the the collator of information, whether it's commentaries (laughs) or or elsewhere. So I thank you. Yes, yes, very much. Uh, Well, yeah, NJ, thank you so much for for your time. Do you want to point people towards uh, your new um, Faith in Doubt podcast that... uh, where can people find that and yeah absolutely what's the, so
0: um i'm sure if you google my name you'll you'll find it but uh in faith and doubt podcast i co-host with uh, my friend here in oregon aj swoboda i also have a blog called crux sola which means the cross alone uh so i just talk about academic books i talk about preaching i talk about uh kind of the hottest latest topics in new testament studies so feel free to keep up with me then i'm on twitter and facebook as well
1: Well, excellent. Yeah, we'll have links and all for all that in the show notes. But um, again, thank you very much for your time. We're we're better off because of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Gupta for your time. Thank you for sharing not only your coffee recommendations, but also a, a wealth of knowledge that comes from decades of scholarly study. Thank you for helping us in our personal study and public proclamation of God's word. So if you are subscribed to the show, well, then you're in luck because this week we're having a bonus episode come out on Thursday, as well as our regularly scheduled episode next Tuesday. Uh, The bonus episode that's going to come out in just a few days is actually uh, me. I was a guest on the Leadership Collective podcast, and I have a conversation with Ted and Rob about all of the aspects of leading a church that aren't involving preaching. Uh, Certainly you guys know there's far more to pastoring and leadership than just teaching and preaching. That's the focus of this podcast, but I really endorse and recommend that you guys check out the Leadership Collective to cover all the other parts of church ministry and leadership. So make sure that you're subscribed so that that appears automatically in your phone or in your device. So the final clip is going to be Pastor Eric Cartier inviting you to our training weekend, which is taking place in Colorado Springs, Colorado in September. All right. I hope that this conversation and all that we do at the Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. All right. Here's Eric Cartier. Hello, this is Pastor Eric Cartier from Rocky Mountain Calvary. I want to invite you to
0: come join us for the Exposers Collective in September. We're hosting it here in Colorado Springs. It's a beautiful setting right by the mountains. But more importantly, this is a great time to be able to get equipped to teach God's Word. What I love most about the Exposers Collective is its focus on young people for God to really raise up the next generation to communicate God's word. We've never needed God's truth more than now. So if you're thinking about coming, consider yourself invited. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a great time.